So welcome everybody to this fantastic event this evening. I'm Michelle King. I'm the Chief People Officer for ODI. This is my second day on the job, so we'll see how <laughs> we'll see how tonight goes. Um, but I'm joined by an incredible panel who I'll introduce in a minute. But I just wanted to open with a few remarks to set the scene for tonight. So as most of you are aware, women remain underrepresented as voters and leaders in the public sector, in academia, in elected office, in civil society. And we know that by World Economic Forum estimates, it's going to take 162, that's 162 years, to close the political empowerment gap. And that is despite women proving time and time and time again that they can lead. And we have incredible examples of that here tonight. So with that in mind, we have to ask ourselves why. Why is it that despite having the education, the qualifications, the demonstrated experience, women still remain underrepresented? And it's due to systemic barriers that women face. And we see this across discriminatory laws, practices, attitudes, gender stereotypes, barriers in education, a lack of access to health, and also in the poverty that women overwhelmingly encounter. So to put it simply, women are remarkable because they don't just go to work and do their jobs. They have to overcome barriers in order to do their jobs. And our job is to try and remove those barriers. So at ODI, it's one of the reasons I joined this organization, we are focused and committed to understanding the barriers that women encounter with an intersectional lens. Our wonderful gender, equity and social inclusion team do a tremendous amount of work to, to understand the unique challenges that women face. And we have wonderful programs and initiatives to tackle these issues. One example is our LIME platform in particular, which really looks at understanding the gender norms and how we can transform them. We also have our LINE toolkit, which offers practical recommendations for how we can expand women's political power. So in combination with our research, our partnerships, and our policy work, we are taking action to tackle the anti-gender backlash head on. And we're also identifying ways to take meaningful action to remove the barriers that women encounter. And one thing that I think will become readily apparent tonight is that when women rise, we all rise. Mm. So one of my favorite studies is by the consulting firm Accenture that over the last decade has shown when we remove the barriers that women encounter in organizations as an example, women are four times more likely to advance to senior leadership positions. But interestingly, men are twice as likely to advance. And the reason that is, is we no longer are supporting people, a small number of people, who conform to an outdated, hyper-masculine way of leading. We've leveled the playing field. Women deserve workplaces that work for them. Women deserve opportunities to lead. So tonight, we're going to be looking at how we can level the playing field for everyone. And joining me is this incredible panel. I feel like I've come absolutely full circle tonight. <laughs> So I've got a wonderful opportunity here um, to chat with Prime Minister, former Prime Minister of New Zealand, Helen Clark, um, my dear colleague and friend and founder of the Mlambo Foundation, Pumzilo Mlambo Nguka. Um, we work together at UN Women, so I'm, I'm very biased with this panel between being a New Zealander and a former UN Women colleague. And um, we've got two other panelists tonight. Um, Malia Khan, who is the president of Women Deliver, and Jan, who I've just met, Jan Mikalko, who is joining us as a research fellow from the Gender Equity and Social Inclusion team. So welcome, panelists. So the format for our panel tonight is we have questions we're going to talk through, but we also want to hear from you. So we really encourage all of you to think of any questions you want to ask. And those of you who are online, you can pop this in the Q&A function in the chat and also share anything on social that you find interesting. I believe it's my second day, so we'll just do this, but our tag, uh, our social tag is at ODI underscore global. So please tweet away and share any observations online. 
So let's kick off our panel. Helen, you're closest, so we're going to start with you. Um, so we know, and I've just mentioned it before, a lot of political leadership traits are associated with masculine norms, like being dominant, assertive, aggressive. And we really wanted to hear from you as to how you, know, you responded to those expectations um, during your time in office, and if you've seen any of those sort of gender norms change over time. So I think when you uh, are seeking political office, uh, particularly where women haven't been very prominent before, uh, your strength becomes your weakness. Basically, there's people who just don't want strong women leading them. And uh, I might say, I mean, this, this was an issue when I was on the rise in New Zealand politics as uh, leader of the opposition. It was very difficult to establish myself. But also years later when I ran for the position of Secretary General of the UN, and I think this also applies to most of the other women candidates who, who ran, we were strong women, and that terrified people. So, you know, it's played against you. You know, you're tough, you're unfeminine. It's almost a, a fear that, that, it, that it evokes. Now, I found when I was in office, this sort of issue went away because, you know, you've won an election, you've demonstrated you can do the job, you, you get on, you get on with it. So that wasn't so much the issue. But I do see these experiences being repeated and, and mm -hmm. repeated. Um, for example, Jacinda Ardern, who was once a young graduate in my back office and became you know, Prime Minister of, of New Zealand uh, many years after I was uh, Prime Minister, she was still facing the same, same issues and the stereotypical um, uh, uh, problems. So, for example, I didn't have children. I was always attacked for not having children because how could I possibly understand how the average family lived? Uh, she was attacked for having children and was labelled part-time Prime Minister. You know, she was working 20 hours a day, but she was still part-time. So the, the, I've found there's always some gender angle that people are going to come at you on. And towards the end of my time as Prime Minister, because inevitably you have a shelf life and people start to get sick of you, but the criticism became gendered again. So any opportunity to label anything that my government did as nanny state, you know, subtitle, this woman is telling you what to do, how to run your life, how to bring up your children, you know, whether you should be using what kind of light bulb. So th there was that. So the, these things just never go away. There is unfortunately deep misogyny in our societies. And, you know, we'll probably get to the issue of, you know, how do women you know, get into positions and work to change it. We we have to support the right of women to participate and, and really get the critical mass to to make these issues, you know, less and less resonant in the community. But that they're still there. Can I just ask a follow-up to mm. that? Did Was there anything you did to try and be aware of it and not internalise it when you experienced it? Because I know for a lot of mm. women that is a challenge when you experience it. Well, when I was running for the Secretary General job, I know people said to me, you should tone down, you know. I said, well, I can't be what I'm not, you know. I mean, I come from a generation like Pomzili where we had to fight like hell to get anywhere. And so, you know, we're strong. You know, we've taken a lot of knocks. We're resilient. And we're not going to pretend that we're somehow, you know, <laughs> fluttering our eyelashes and, you know, lowering our cleavage or something to, to get a position. I mean, that's, that, that would be ridiculous. So you, I, I think also there's a, there's a bigger issue, and that is authenticity counts quite a lot in politics, mm -hmm. you know. And, and if you're trying to be something that you're not, that's going to count against you. As, as well. And exhausting, yeah. And, and, it's, and it would be exhausting. Well, thank you. Marley, yeah. I'm going to jump to you and then I'll come back to you, Pumzila. We're going we're gonna to do jumping here. But, Marley, you know, there's an assumption that women in politics will work to change gender norms. But um, interestingly, I think we've seen a lot of women <clears throat> in political leadership actually advocating for traditional gender roles. So I just wondered, from your perspective, you know, what are some of the implications of the anti-gender backlash for how we look at women in politics? And you know, what should we do to get more women, more feminist women, into politics? Yeah, and thank you, Michelle, for those questions. Um, 
I, I think we just have to look around us. I mean, sitting here in the UK, we can look around at, at not all women politicians or leaders are feminists. And in, in fact, many of them are leading the charge against gender, advancing gender norms and, and the sort of feminist agenda. Um, and I think there's a, a number of different reasons for that. Um, I won't speak to the political arena because I think you know, in front of my board members, uh, <laughs> Helen and, and Fubzili, I, I, I'm not really qualified to talk about how difficult it is for a feminist woman to enter politics and to take a leadership position. But, but I do think one of the things I would, I would say is, is that the feminist movement doesn't necessarily support feminist leaders, uh, political leaders enough. Uh, because they're in such a misogynist and conservative context, uh, they can't always do everything we want them to do, even when they try. And they can't always make public all the stances that they personally or in some other context might want to do. And, and rather than appreciating whatever they can do, the feminist movement and civil society tends to tear them down. Uh, we as a movement are, are very, very good at... Um, if I can say it, eating our own, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you're never <laughs> feminist enough, um, and so we, we really attack it, and I think that isolates them. It gives the opposition a huge amount of ammunition against them. And and also, and I'm probably speaking on, on your behalf, but I assume it becomes a very, very lonely place to be in. Um, you're probably the most feminist person within your own context of the political party or parliament, um, and yet you're not feminist enough for the feminist movement. And so you sit there in isolation trying to do your best. So I, I think in that area, uh, the sort of uh, anti-rights movement really takes advantage of, of that sort of space. And, and I think a few things happen. Um, one is uh, the, the, the women who are more conservative in their point of view get a big boost from that anti-rights movement. They get funding, they get support. They get put into positions where they can talk about family values and other things that are just code for uh, a sort of anti-feminist uh, sort of against uh, pro pro progress on gender norms. Um, and I think the other thing is that it gives space to this anti-rights movement to put in place the tactics that they're using. They're using tactics like co-option um, of, 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 of things that we might otherwise do, mm -hmm. uh, like putting forward policies that are cloaked in family values and trying to be pro-family, um, and, and choice. They've actually even started to uh, co-opt words like choice, which were very much mm -hmm. part of the feminist agenda. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think some of you might have witnessed, for instance, at the last Women Deliver conference, President Novak came uh, onto the stage, um, and which is one of the things of, of co-opting and, and, and um, sort of entering the space and use the word choice, but in her words, it was choice to have more children yeah. Uh, yeah. and choice to have large families, etc. Which is just a, a way of, of putting those things out there. So I think a few there's, there can be a, a lot of things that we can be doing, mm -hmm. both as you know people who aspire, women who are aspiring to enter political office and take leadership positions. But I would speak most uh, you know concretely about what can the feminist movement do to one, work with politicians that you know, maybe trying their hardest, maybe in the middle ground to move them and make it easier for them to move to more progressive policies. But also, how can we provide solidarity to those who are really, really trying hard? And that's something that we try to do um, in our organization, particularly at the conference where we try to make that connection between more grassroots advocates and activists and more political leaders to see there's a lot of middle ground that they can mm -hmm. meet on and really take agendas forward. Thank you. And I think isolation is, is a challenge all women leaders face, but absolutely that's compounded um, by the issues you just shared. So thank you for that. Um, Pumzile, over to you, my friend. So, you know, we see there are a lot of women being discredited as not being capable enough to be in politics, with women needing to be exceptional to get the same roles <coughs> as the average man. With the Umlambo Foundation, there's a focus on education as a key driver for change. So we just wanted to know how do you see gender norms impacting women and girls' access to education and the implications down the line on women's ability to succeed in office? Thank you very much, uh, Michelle. Um, 
I mean, as you know, um, tragedies affect uh, children as young as five, four, six. So you can never be too early um, uh, to start engaging children and um, addressing all these prejudices. A home mm -hmm. is a very important space for children to see the role models that they need in their lives. How their parents behave is very important. Mm -hmm. A school is very important, starting with the foundation um, level, which is where we work at Umlambo Foundation. We engage boys um, as they are doing grade one about toxicity, toxic masculinity, without necessarily calling it that to them, because obviously you don't want to be giving them big words. <laughs> uh, but uh, you just point out uh, what, is, uh, what is good behavior and why boys and girls um, are, are, are equal. And you really have to nurture that throughout their school mm. so that by the time they get to grade 12, uh, both girls and boys uh, have hopefully uh, embraced the right values. But for girls in particular, it's important to make sure that you give them as much resilience mm -hmm. as you can give them. You give them vocabulary to call out discrimination when they face them, as, as well as to be aware of uh, gender-based violence which may come their way. And you also want to make sure that if they do get to university, they are also uh, in it to win. Uh, they are not going to be put down. It's still said that now girls do very well uh, more girls are graduating than boys even. Mm -hmm. But when you get to the workplace, girls are not in senior positions. Mm -hmm. I mean, girls are shocked to be with a boy at school mm -hmm. who is a, 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 a DC student and the girl is an A student and you get to work and this boy is a boss and you're like, yeah. what happened How? here? You, <laughs> you know, so it's a struggle all the way. It is exhausting people. <laughs> it really is exhausting. But, uh, you know, this is not the time to stop, though. Uh, we have to continue to give the girls uh, the strengths and to, and to encourage them. And I think for us, uh, who have now aged in this struggle, uh, you always have to make sure that... Uh, we engage in intergenerational struggles mm -hmm. so that you are able to share your experiences with um, a, a younger people. Uh, you are able to encourage them. And literally, you know, you are the shoulders they must, they must stand on so that uh, they can take their own journey forward. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think the, um, you know, for, for me, gender equality begins at home and it's, it's mm -hmm. really, you know, Gina Davis or a Gina Davis Institute, they've done a huge mm -hmm. amount of work in this space around mm -hmm. just simply raising awareness of kids and to mm -hmm. your point, vocabulary being mm -hmm. key. Um, and for me, that's definitely something as a mum of two little ones, I'm, I'm trying to hammer home my son just as much as my daughter. Mm -hmm. <coughs> so Jan... <coughs> Excuse me, I'm losing my voice here. Um, thank you so much for joining us. So we've got um, a question for you on, on our work. So can you tell us a little bit more about the ODI Align research and how it sheds light on the, some of the experiences you've just heard? Yeah, thanks, Michelle. And um, I wanted to <clears throat> also going to lose my voice. Um, um, speak to two points uh, to, to what uh, both Helen and Pumzila mentioned. I think. Um, with regards to the expectations of women in politics and the norms that we see uh, that are attached to political leaders. So we, over the last year through Align, did research with partners in, in different countries to understand how gender norms shape local politics in particular. So there is a lot of uh, literature and research out there on the national level, but we wanted to look more at the community or subnational national level. And some of the norms and expectations that Helen mentioned are also present, of course, um, at this level. 
and how these gendered norms manifest themselves um, is also intersectional. So you mentioned that in your in your um, introduction, and that is very important, especially we think about um, our interventions and what can be done. Um, age is definitely one of those kind of axes of power and difference where we see that, of course, when you are a young woman, uh, the kind of resistance that you face, the arguments about, you know, having to marry first and, uh, you know, get a husband before you can enter politics, all the way to you not being a good enough of a mother, um, all the way to now make room uh, for, for younger generations. So I think that intersectional understanding of gender norms is really important. And age is one of those big mm -hmm. factors. But of course, we can think about ability. Uh, we've done research in Zimbabwe with a partner, um, deaf women included, who show very clearly how that intersection of disability and gender um, makes a very particular experience for women trying to enter politics. But we can talk about race and ethnicity, of course, sexual orientation and others. So it's very important to have that lens if we are trying to think about the kind of um, how to make sure that women in their diversity uh, are able to enter politics. And the other quick point then to, to what Pumzila was just talking about in terms of education, um, I think the, and the intersection with um, employment, um, so I think thinking about politics as being part of the bigger societal um, uh, issues that you, we don't look into politics kind of outside of the other context because, um, for example, in addition to education, the economy is important to think about because it's very expensive to run for office for, for, for many women. You know, in different political systems, of course, it works differently, but you know, to raise funds for a campaign to be able to run for office is very expensive. So if you're already disadvantaged in your education experience, in your employment, then of course, then trying to make it into political office um, is difficult because you don't have the funds. But you don't also have the social networks, for example, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to get uh, uh, to do fundraising and to 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 run. So I think um, when we're thinking about interventions and what can be done to break these barriers, we cannot only look at politics, but we have to look at the pipeline and the um, the different sectors that that surround it and um, make investment there, because ultimately then you get women into politics of a certain socioeconomic background and certain women from a certain class background get, get excluded uh, as well. So that ties back to the intersectionality that we need to need to think about those, those issues. Okay, thank you. That's a really good point. Um, Helen, turning to you on the upcoming elections and just reflecting on them, you know, we often see authoritarians and you know, weak democracies, putting forward women advocates. Um, you mentioned this before with some of those tokenistic efforts and advocating for gender equality, but this is just a veneer of apparent progress while the rights and equities are being eroded on all fronts. So how should we respond um, to the global calls for women's political representation without falling prey to weakening democracies and attacks on the rule of law? Just a light question. A light yeah. question. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I, I think in general, authoritarian regimes aren't that great for women, right? Mm. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean, you give several examples. I mean, one, China. There has never been a woman on the seven-member standing committee, which in effect rules China. And for the first time in a couple of decades, there's not even a woman on the broader Politburo. And the whole history of of the current uh, form of political system in China, there's only ever been six women on the on the Politburo since 1949, and three of them were uh, wives or survivors of, of men, of male leaders. So, you know, <laughs> you, you just don't see too many women around those decision-making tables. Then you look at uh, regimes like the, the Russian one, uh, you don't see too many women around uh, President Putin, um, except in other roles. Um, and, and since 2018, they've been offering, um, you know, incentives, financial incentives to women to have children, you know, keep them in their place. In Hungary, uh, if you have four children, you will never pay income tax as a woman. That's from 2019. So, you know, these regimes are, are, are not really not really nice. Uh, the other thing I would say is we have seen women who are quite authoritarian. Uh, so women aren't saints either in this respect. Uh, take, for example, the quite flawed election which was just held in, in Bangladesh. Uh, Indira Gandhi, of course, uh, remembered for many things, but including the state of emergency which uh, suppressed 
civil liberties, which you know, goes to the broader point that, that women aren't, aren't all saints, they don't all do the right thing. And we're really advocating here, I think, for, for women who will stand up for women and, and do something uh, around rights. But in, in general, where, where women aren't doing well on rights, I think it, it's sort of the canary in the mind for everybody else, LGBTQI. Uh, plus mm -hmm. um, uh, disability rights, right, rights in general. Thank you. I don't know, Amalia, if you want to add anything to that. I've got another question for you, but I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Um, I mean, I think the, the, the last point is really important to sort of amplify a little bit. Um, one of the things that we know from the anti-rights movement, and I just wanted to emphasize that it isn't just the sort of inherent native misogyny or patriarchy that exists in many societies. There is a organized, well-funded, very strategic, very long-term thinking movement that's out there who, who specifically target sort of feminist leadership and bring it down. Um, so, so it isn't just, you know, that, okay, eventually we'll make progress. They, they're specifically targeting any progressive platforms or any progressive parties or any pro progressive politicians or other fields too. We just saw what happened in the US, for instance, to some progressive um, sort of university leadership who were specifically targeted and brought down, not because of what they did right then at that moment, but that was used as an excuse. Um, so the other thing to really think about is when, when, when these types of things get targeted, it's the, it's the sort of entry point and then all sorts of you know, sort of rights and liberties, uh, particularly of minorities, but others also really become a point of, of starting, uh, of making that progress that they would like to see. And they also think of it in terms of progress. Um, so I think we just need to think about, you know, very intentionally, not only how do we continue our journey, but how do we counter the tactics that they're using? That's a road, yeah. In general, in the anti-right space, uh, the first people to suffer are women. Uh, their reproductive rights and bodily autonomy uh, is taken away. Uh, uh, ageism becomes very strong mm -hmm. in the, you can think of anything, homophobia becomes mm -hmm. very strong, racism mm -hmm. becomes mm -hmm. very strong, ableism becomes very strong. So it just brings in all kinds of uh, prejudices that would affect uh, so many people across mm -hmm. any population and community. Mm. Which mm. is why I think we always say as feminists, mm. you can't just be concerned about just being a woman. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to be concerned about all of these issues mm. and, and the intersectionality and fight all of them at the same time. Mm. Yeah, I'm into that. So Pumzila, I'm going to close out. We've got the last question for you, and I've got a question for all panellists. Um, so you were the first woman to hold the position of the Deputy President of South Africa. I mean, amazing. And you were at that point the highest ranking woman in the country's history. We know that role models and mentors can have a huge impact on women's choices to enter politics and succeed. And your influence as a role model to women um, who followed in your footsteps has been immeasurable. So my question to you is growing up under apartheid, what was it like for you to break into the space and how have you felt about your role as an inspiration to others since then? Well, um, one, I can tell you, it's very boring to be the first of this and first of that. <laughs> because it's, it's not supposed to be like that. Mm -hmm. There is no reason why it took such a long time for a woman to be in that position. But well, that's where we were. Yeah. And I was very conscious that uh, I need to be one person who feels like I am 10 people so as to create an illusion of uh, the presence of women and the push um, that you need. The importance of being a role model, because uh, in many cases, 
we learn by identifying with the people who look like us. If you see a woman who's like you or a person who's black like you, that encourages you. I mean, it just reminds me of a story that a young boy in Germany during Merkel's time was uh, in a classroom and the teacher was asking, so who, who of you would like to be uh, the president of this country? And all the girls raised their hands and the boys didn't raise their hand. And the teacher was like, boys, you don't want to be president? He says, no, we can't be. President is a woman here. All he says we are women. Just shows you how much uh, just seeing somebody that looks or doesn't look like you can actually influence how you, you are going to be. So I was very conscious that uh, I, I must almost exaggerate mm. the encouragement mm. so that uh, young women in particular, but women in general, feel the confidence and see the possibility mm. um, that they have um, in them. It's also important to also make a difference mm -hmm. so that you are not there is just a token. Uh, if you have power, exercise it. It is absolutely important to be in a position of power and to use that power, obviously, responsibly. Do the things that you're supposed mm. to do, but people must never see you as a pushover mm. yes. uh, because mm. then you perpetuate this uh, kind of thinking that women are, are softer or are lighter. And you don't have to be harsh. Uh, but hey, they must know you're there. It really is important. Thank you. So our final question for our panelists, then we're going to turn to our lovely audience, um, both here in person and online, is looking ahead at this year's elections, what is the most important action needed to encourage women's participation in politics? So Jan, I'm going to start, I'm going to put you right on the spot. Um, maybe you can kick us off and share your action. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I will probably um, sort of side answer the question because I think as much as I understand the urgency with all the elections coming uh, up this year, I would actually say that uh, let's think long term because there is a lot that we need to do now to invest into changes so that actually in the next election cycle we can bear the fruit of those investments. And as you mentioned at the beginning, our team looks very much at gender norm change. And that takes time. Uh, you know, it's a generational effort. You know, we're talking 10 years time frame. So I would say, let's look at this election as a, as a time to invest into those changes that will bring the, the changes in, 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 the, in a generation and shift the gender norms. And so with that, I would probably suggest, uh, you know, looking at political parties and their manifestos in terms of where they're investing and where they see the priorities. And I would recommend education. You know, we spoke about it earlier. And to think about, you know, what is, for example, happening with teacher training? Are teachers being able to provide gender equitable education? Are young people being taught, you know, the right critical skills to be in an online space where they are encountering a lot of misogyny so that, you know, as, as we said earlier, we start with the younger generation so that in the future, um, you know, they are prepared to engage in the world and more women are able to then enter into politics because I think a lot of the times we think about encouraging individual women to take up the mantle, but actually we need to do the structural changes that will kind of create the environment where women uh, can thrive and where the gender norms that are holding them back are, are removed. And I think that's where it's the kind of the long-term investment. Fantastic. Mali? Um, well, if I can do two parts to the answer. One is, <laughs> at a personal level, I think every one of us needs to go out and vote, and every one of us needs to donate, I mean, to whoever is in front of you, whether it's at local level or or, or, or your, your constituency or at the national level. Um, I think too, too often we disengage and then, and then blame the political system and blame whoever comes out of it. Um, so that's, that's at an individual level. But, but then, you know, sort of representing civil society, um, I think we need to do a, a couple of things. One, we need to engage uh, with and support uh, those sort of feminist leaders that are out there, encourage them, um, encourage them to be move in that direction. Um, and not tear them down. I, mean, I know I've said this several times, but I do think uh, we need to be supportive of that. And, and the second thing we need to do is, is stop 
as a civil society treating politics as a dirty game. The more we say it's too, it's too toxic for us to engage in, etc., the more we leave it to people who thrive in that toxicity. Um, and so, uh, so I think that that's something we, we as a civil society also need to grapple with and engage with and support. Fantastic. Thank you. Pumzile? Well, I mean, I, I agree with uh, uh, Malika. We, we have to be out there. And it should not just be women. This gender issue, it's a mess that men made. So it really is important to make sure that the men take responsibility, mm -hmm. that they are engaged, that they, they contribute towards mm -hmm. finding solution. I can never overemphasize that. It's it just not fair mm -hmm. or even sustainable to make fighting for gender equality mm -hmm. a woman's responsibility. It's not a woman's chore. It's a societal issue that needs both men and women and any other gender that is there um, in society. Mm -hmm. And we actually have to, as Maliha is saying, encourage the men to do the work. Because I think sometimes, we, feminists of my time, we want to hold on to this as if we're the only ones mm -hmm. who can make the change and make it difficult for other people to find entry points, especially men. I mean, I know during my time, I just never thought that men had a contribution to make. I wish I had <laughs> realized this much we love earlier. You here, Jan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but now I realize that uh, if this does not change, mm -hmm. I cannot be talking to women all the time mm -hmm. because I'm preaching to the converted and I'm leaving the culprits outside the story. So you need to bring the men inside and make them take responsibility without always also making them special when they do that. Because you know, yeah. you should have been praising fishes for swimming. It's just a job <laughs> that men must do as part of society. Thank you, Pumzile. Reminds me of the UN Women campaign you had, Pumzile, he for she. Yeah. <laughs> Where And the male leaders all used to compete to get this award from UN Women to be a he for yeah. she working yeah. for gender equality. And you were quite tough on them. They had to have some <laughs> concrete actions to justify it. Um, but uh, look, agreeing with every point everyone else has, has made, uh, a couple of others. Firstly, we have to put the pressure on political parties because most political systems, people are elected through, you know, being put by their parties in positions where they can win. And uh, often women are being put where they can't win. So yeah. the pressure has to go on uh, for women to be in electable positions, whether it's party lists or the, the nature of the constituency, uh, whatever. Political parties can be the greatest champions of women in politics, but they can also be the greatest opponents and underminers. So that has to change. Then I think there's, there's three practical things that often occur. One is fundraising, which Jan's already uh, referred to. The old girls' networks are not as well-heeled as the old boys' networks. So as Maliha said, whatever we can do to, you know, to even up the odds there is important. Uh, secondly, and it's a slightly longer-term issue, the nature of the electoral system does have a bearing on it. Um, you know, in the UK, which has the traditional first-past-the-post system, it was a hell of a heave to get mm. to mm. decent numbers of women in Parliament. I think when Labor came in in 97 here, it had women-only shortlists, and that made quite a difference. That was then, of course, ruled out by an equal, gender, uh, equal equality um, uh, tribunal of, of, of some kind. But... In New Zealand, you know, we struggled along very low numbers of women in Parliament until proportional representation was introduced. And that structurally makes a difference because it's much harder for political parties to go to the electorate with a list that doesn't have many women on it. Because women, hang on, you're really seriously presenting that list that doesn't have many women. From one election to the next, when the last under the old British-style system to the first proportional election, the numbers of women jumped from 20% to 30% in one election period, mm. three years. And, of course, by the, the time of the parliament that's just closed in New Zealand, we have a new one now, it had gone to 50%. But there was just an acceleration of numbers because parties had to face the reality that you can't present with without women on your lists. Um, the last point I was going to make is that 
in many societies, and frankly this also increasingly uh, means Western societies, physical security is mm. an issue mm. for women. And given that we are disproportionately targeted on social media, targeted, <laughs> trolled, harassed, bullied, that starts to spill over into uh, threats of physical of violence in, in the West as, as anywhere else. Uh, before Jacinda Ardern left politics, it got to the stage where she really couldn't go anywhere public pre-announced. You know, you, it, one of the traditional sort of things you'd do in a campaign was, you know, go through the shopping malls, mm. you know, with your campaign team. You couldn't do it anymore. Just too mm. many abusive, <laughs> hating people mobilised against you. So physical security is quite an issue. And, and who of us will, you know, ever forget that image of Benazir Bhutto's assassination? Mm. I'll never forget that. Her head up above the, the, the roof level of the car, you know, bang, gone in, in, in a flash. So... This is raised as a very real issue across societies now, that the, the physical security of women. Mm. Well, mm. thank you, panellists. Thank you so much. And just to add a couple of thoughts um, from my end, I think two things um, that are quite practical that we can start to think about is for young women, I'll give you a statistic that's quite shocking, A academic study found that within the first three years of working life, young women's confidence in their ability to advance to senior leadership positions drops by more than 60%. Mm -hmm. And it's because they get into workplaces, get into organisations and start to internalise the inequality they experience. They mm -hmm. see these outdated, hyper-masculine ways of leading and they think, this is not for me. And that's a real danger to supporting the next generation of young women. So one practical thing all of us can do is help raise awareness of the inequality they're experiencing mm -hmm. Um, so that they don't internalise it. And I think the second point is with the increasing gender divide, we've seen the reports out this week of young boys being less supportive of gender equality. I think for me in the work that I've done with men and young men in particular, I think helping them understand why this benefits them. You're not helping women, you're solving a problem you create. Women can't solve a problem they don't create. And so we need young men to understand that actually everything they want in terms of freedom to engage in more effective leadership behaviours, um, a lack of bullying, workplaces <laughs> where they feel welcomed, that comes through creating an environment that works for everybody. And so it ultimately benefits not just their advancement, but also their fulfilment in life and work. So I think helping young men understand why this benefits them might be another way to enrol them. So I want to thank you all for sitting here on a Tuesday night and participating. I'm waiting for questions to come through from our online audience. So I wanted to check with the room. Oh, we've got raised hands from your husband as well. All right. Um, I believe there's microphone. Oh, and here we've got microphones. So the microphone team... Um, uh, yep, maybe we'll start. We'll start there because it's nearest to you, and then we'll come around. Hello, everyone. I am Santana Muthani. I'm from Nairobi, and I work at the intersection of policy, gender, and technology. And I love that Helen Clark. You talked about the physical safety of women in, in you know, in politics or even trying to participate in politics. And something that I've seen, um, especially in the Kenyan political space, is uh, women's intimate videos being released online. Uh, we've seen, you know, women's locations being doxxed their houses. Mm -hmm. So you have people stalking them. And I think of the fact that we have, we need to build resilience, as Fumzila said, mm -hmm. right? But how do you build resilience in a way that, as you get physical safety, they're also safe online, mm -hmm. and in a way that is also intersectional? Because we recognize that some of these uh, women leaders may not know how to use the internet, mm -hmm. may not even have access to the internet. Mm -hmm. So how, but now they'll still end up finding mm -hmm. their videos and then also the issue of deep fakes, right? Where someone said something, but they actually didn't say it. So you have videos of you going around saying things that you know, are misleading. So how can we best build resilience and you know, best protect uh, women who are vying for political office? Thank you. Who'd like to take that one? Helen? Well, it's a huge issue. I, I was on a, a panel in the last couple of weeks looking at the implications of artificial intelligence uh, for women in political systems and decision-making, and it's quite profound. And first, I think we have to build an awareness of, of the problem. Uh, I think it's going to mean you know, new skills needed on campaign teams just to be monitoring uh, what's happening. Uh, we, we also need... Um, 
to be pressuring for law and regulation to be up with this. You know, a deep fake impersonation, is, is that captured by our law now? You know, our, our laws are all being outdated by the sudden pace of technology. So at, at a number of levels, there, there are actions that, that we need to take. Uh, but you know, first, build awareness in our teams, and and also on the resilience thing. I mean, they're horrible people in our societies, and they they play out their hatred on, uh, you know, on social media media sites. Uh, I mean, I, I think you just have to be ruthless with them. I hide and block, hide and block, report, report. Twitter, by the way, almost never upholds any complaint. Doesn't matter how vile it is, but you have to keep on harassing them, you know, always report, always block, always hide. Just don't leave yourself open to the horrific things that people are, th are throwing at you. Mm. Anything else, panellists? I mean, the, uh, the one thing I'll add is that, you know, know that all of this is not happening just in the political space, yeah. right? It's mm -hmm. like literally pick up any any sphere, whether it's political, it's economic, it's academia, it's civil society, um, th these, these are connected processes. The people who are producing the deep fakes, the ones who have the troll farms and all of these, they're all targeting mm -hmm. sort of, you know, women feminist leaders out there in every single field. And so I think just as they're very strategic and joined up and well-funded, we have to become strategic and joined up and well-funded. And so far, we've been very much head in the sand and ignoring it as if it'll just go away by itself. Thank you. I'm still waiting for our online audience to ask any questions, um, but we will now move. We've got quite a few over here, so I don't know if we can. That's great. Thank you. We'll pass the mic. Thank you, and thank you for such a wonderful panel. Uh, my name is Dr Jenny Martin, so I'm an associate partner with Raven Martin, but I also founded the Global Mental Health Collective Pandemic Periods. Um, I can speak to the fact that I also receive quite a lot of online hate. and cyber abuse and hate, which yeah. is very challenging. Yeah. But one of the things I really wanted to ask the panel was, we are seeing a global pushback on women's rights, sexual reproductive rights, the rights of the LGBTQIA community. We have seen that at the UN General Assembly with um, sexual reproductive rights, health and body autonomy being omitted largely from the declaration, the political declaration on UHC, and again from the executive board that's just sat last week, which will obviously set the, the precedence for what's happening at WHA. So as we go into an election year where we have almost 60 elections that are happening, country-level elections, and that's what's happening at the global level, I feel like we need to do more to encourage this dialogue and discussion and to be braver because if the UN General Assembly, if we can't have a discussion about sexual reproductive health rights, then how are we going to get it to the member states at that level? Um, and I think just another thing, so that's my question, but also we have funding that goes to feminist movements. 5% of global funding is going to feminist movements. So how can we mobilise more funding and encourage donors, even like Gates, to invest more in grassroots level? And I can see you laughing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's you know we are the ones on the ground that are doing the work we are the ones that are working with the governments and we are trying our best to push policies I mean I've had quite uh, a good relationship with the Scottish government so we've done such great things but not every government is accessible and um, I would love to know your experiences and what you think we can do to try to advocate for more funding for feminist movements. So you've got a two-parter there. <laughs> Sorry um, for that. <laughs> no, we've got this is the panel to ask that question. So, Pumzila, uh, do you want to maybe share some thoughts on funding? Ooh. It is hard. <laughs> um, I think that, I mean, I, I used to say when I was working at UN Women that the women's agenda is broke. They... <laughs> It's just no money to do women's work. No wonder we struggle so hard to have an impact because the money is just um, uh, uh, so scarce. Even when we tried to uh, bring together private sector, philanthropists, governments, and uh, high network people, just what we could bring together uh, just didn't get to where you needed uh, to get. I think there's still an attitude that doing women's work doesn't cost money. Um, you can just bake cakes 
<laughs> and make money out of the cakes that they, they bring. I mean, if governments, for instance, in their budget, having identified the problems that women face, would only give 10% of, it was just generally 10% of what is required to women. And for the rest, you, you just have to see. So it is just not taken serious um, enough. I mean, I don't think I have, I've, I've lived through that. It is painful. It's probably one of the most difficult um, things. And I, I don't know, uh, I don't think I have even an answer uh, for, this, uh, for this challenge. And when we get a little bit, then we get uh, excited. And I think we overthink people who are stingy. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Malia, oh, Jan, yep. But, go ahead. I, I mean, I think you were being generous in your 5%. Um, I think it's 5% of philanthropy, not 5% of international uh, development aid. And so then it cuts down to the point something percent. Um, and then if you factor in how much of that is going to uh, sort of uh, uh, organizations and institutions led by women of color or other sort of marginalized ones that, or, or the, that address those, that, that goes even lower. Um, uh, have, I, I think we need to sort of call out, um, call out the philanthropy that is at least making the noises of principled, you know, sort of fu funding gender, funding feminist movements. Um, you know, very bravely, uh, uh, one of the sort of uh, officers of a of a large philanthropic uh, foundation, um, very bravely in a very public forum said, well, I'll call it out. Uh, you know, their foundation funds over $500 million a year, supposedly is one of the best and most philanthropic, uh, sort of feminist of them. And she called out and said, well, the gender, the sort of feminist movements get 65 million of those, right? So we need to start to start to do that analysis and push those that at least are saying the right things to be like, you can do better. Mm. You've got these millions. I mean, if we could feminist get... Feminist governments. And feminist governments. If you, if, you, if you say you have a feminist foreign policy, mm. let's yeah. do a gender audit. Mm. And not just a gender audit of, well, we have this huge big health project and 50% must be women, so therefore let's just put 50% of that. In. But a true one to look at how, many is, how much is going to feminist movements, how much is going to you know, people of color and other uh, marginalized people. Um, and start to hold those accountable. But also, I think we need to <clears throat> start to look at ways that we can move you know, what, what we would call uh, the movable middle mm -hmm. and get and influence them to move towards this too. Mm -hmm. And I actually smiled when you said Gates, not because I think they're not doing it, because I think they, they are on a journey where they can very quickly start to do it and in many ways are funding things that are sort of you know next to that, and and now are not afraid to say the feminist word and and other things mm -hmm. like that. So we have to also you know support those, and particularly support those who are inside these organizations, who are again, mm -hmm. uh, again emphasize you know leading the most lonely of existences because mm -hmm. they're fighting, uh, and are always being targeted and always being named and shamed inside their own organizations. And when they step out and get into a feminist space. Get get clobbered again by us saying you're not doing enough and and where do they go then? I think yeah. we I think we could encourage you know or exhort all funders uh, to use a gender market tool on their allocations. Mm. Uh, the, this was introduced around the UN when I was there and basically mm. uh, you know you in our projects we had to look at how much was was totally. Uh, dedicated to advancing gender mm. equality in its mm. different dimensions. Uh, how much was was that sort of part of the overall objective of the program? And, and was it not there at all? And you tried to eliminate the not there at all. Now, if you spin that around to the funders, the question should be, how much of your money is going specifically to this cause? Can you can you identify that everything else you're funding has this in as a, as a dimension? In other words, you, you try and flush it out. Otherwise, you know, they will get away with generalities, as as um, Maliha has said. I mean, you know, there, there have been good donors in the SRHR and gender equality space, but it's it's very vulnerable to changes of, of government. For example, you know, 
Margot Wallström's feminist foreign policy in Sweden, has that survived the transition to a new government? I doubt it. You know, the Dutch used to be very forward-leaning yeah. on funding in this stage. Cool. If we get a Wilders-led government, not much, not much chance of that. My last point was going to be on the on the the, the rights rollback. You know, Roe versus Wade was a, a you know mm. shocking blow and, and signal. It came against a background where there'd actually been a bit of improvement globally. You know, Argentina had legislated, mm. uh, mm. Chile and Michelle Bachelet's time had legislated. But I think Roe versus Wade reminded us how precarious these gains are, mm. where political mm. majorities change. And you know, this new president in Argentina who's quite extraordinary. I mean, you can see the abortion legislation is now under threat. If you've got a swing from President Boric to the far-right candidate who he narrowly mm. beat in Chile, mm. does their legislation go on the block? So, you know, we can never relax. Mm. You know, we think we've won these battles. If we put up our feet and go away, we'll lose ground again. So I'm really calling for a perpetual campaign mentality, you know, that you, you, if, if we relax, we run real risk of, of rollback. And this is why women are remarkable. Jan, right. do you want to share your a couple of points? Yeah, maybe if I, if I can, I think, because um, our team has done a lot of work on uh, working with and funding feminist movements uh, because of the, the importance to, to, to the work that they, they bring. And I think two quick points. I think one is, you know, of course, calling for more money, but I think there is also... Um, things to make the money work better. Um, and I think part of it is, uh, for example, for donors being more kind of understanding who they give the money to, because they're, I mean, you might have seen the reports where money for gender equality goes to actors who actually have a very different agenda behind the kind of the veneer. So I think kind of doing our homework and doing, doing things better. And there's also, you know, best practices out there from women's, women's funds, for example, of how to do um, uh, to give money to feminist movements that are maybe more informal. There's this kind of assumption that, you know, they're maybe too small to get the money to, they're too difficult, they don't meet the certain expectations. But there are channels to, you know, fund uh, feminist movements with a large sum of money. They are able to absorb it. And so there are those uh, best practices and there are ways of making the, the, the money uh, move faster to the, or in, in high amounts. And I think the uh, just a final quick point is this kind of conversation about um, you know, swinging politics and then kind of retracting the feminist commitments. I think that's why the kind of the work that we do on gender norms is so important because it's kind of thinking, how do we future prove? How do we kind of ground things in the society so that when, you know, um, there are these political moments, we, you know, the electorate demands certain things. And I think that's why, again, working with feminist movements, working in the social level so that the citizens expect their politicians uh, to, to behave certain way and they don't, you know, they're not able to, for example, have the lists without any women on them, et cetera. So I think the long game and kind of looking at the norms in the society is the kind of the future proofing. Okay, well, we've got time for one more question. I've also got an online one, so we'll try and squeeze him in, but this is Helen Clark's husband, so we have to, have to give him the option. What does the panel think about quotas? Uh, that was my um, I have my own view on quotas, but we'll, we'll ask the panel. Um, yeah, what are no, your view on quotas? Well, I, I've got a view on it. <laughs> is this a, you're a plant, yeah. I think. No, yeah, it, it, no, it really does speed up yeah. the representation of, of, of women in politics. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, sometimes I'd, I'd go to developing countries that come mm -hmm. out of experience of colonisation and, and, you know, the women would say, we're, we're so slow, mm -hmm. we're so slow. I'd say, don't be as slow as we were. In New Zealand, women got the vote in 1893. They didn't give us the right to run for parliament till 1919. The first woman was elected 40 years after we got the vote. I mean, this is pathetic. When I was elected in 1981, we were still under 9% of the parliament. This is close to a century after we got the vote. This is awful. So what I've seen uh, is where quotas have been ad adopted, whether it's Rwanda or wherever, the numbers of women have just accelerated so fast in politics. It helps break the mold. So. I'm for them. I also support um, um, quotas and, and, and or targets. Any special measure yes. to help uh, with uh, speeding up uh, uh, inclusion of, of women. I mean, the risk is that if you don't have quotas, 
you just don't move. Mm -hmm. And this idea that uh, we, we have now that uh, it's going to be taking more than 100 years before we can ever get um, anywhere, it could change so much. If the whole world were to have some kind of uh, special measures, and if something moves on in one part of the world, it actually influences what happens in another part of the world. Yeah. Jan, you look like you're ready to jump in. No, I mean, I, I, I would agree. I think I would just add a caveat. I think there are different types of quotas that are more effective than others. I think, you know, somebody mentioned the example of, you know, putting women in slots that are unelectable, right? So in a way, there is the you need to make sure that it's it's a certain type of quota that will make sure that the women actually do get into those positions of power. And I think then kind of the other caveat is, you know, the additional support that goes with law, because sometimes it can be kind of an easy way. Let, well, it's always difficult to pass that kind of legislation, but mm -hmm. it could be seen as, as, a, as a panacea. But it needs to be accompanied with investment into other things like, for example, mobilizing political will that, you know, parties and we do the change in parties that we, you know, uh, for example, make women aware of how to use the different legislation changes that are happening in their favor, because sometimes we not, might not be able to demand that those those laws are actually implemented. So I think they need to be accompanied. With so I have failed in my job as moderator and completely neglected the online um, <laughs> questions, uh, but it's been a wonderful discussion. I want to just close with one last question, if we can, because I know we're at time. It's an important one, though, and you mentioned it before. So technology facilitated gender-based violence is increasingly used as a tool to dissuade women from participating in politics, to silence them or to push them into self-censoring or stepping back from politics. Have you seen any successful models of political parties supporting women candidates or politicians to address technology facilitated gender-based violence or publicly denouncing these attacks? No, I haven't, but I'd love to be informed that there are some. As I say, I think our campaign teams, they need new literacy in this. I think it's its come up on us very, very fast. And it, it, I think probably the, the failure of Hillary Clinton to be elected was what jolted a, mm -hmm. a lot of awareness of the way, you know, the, the social media were being used as a tool to you know, harass and prevent women getting forward. So, yeah, we, we just need greater efforts. If there are some, let, let's hear about them. Any other thoughts on that question? And, and also we need to better legislation yeah. mm -hmm. um, in order to make sure that it's not mm -hmm. as easy as it is now to use uh, technology to, to harass um, women. In, in many parts of the world, if not everywhere, uh, those who mean well are always ahead of those. I mean, those who don't mean well are always yeah. ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, governments and other uh, law enforcers are always running behind. There has to be a way in which we now anticipate that this is, is going to happen. I mean, I'm, I'm just afraid of the elections we're going to have this year, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, of just how technology is going to be used mm -hmm. against people. Mm -hmm. You know, and by now, one would have hoped that uh, something has already been done to anticipate mm -hmm. all the horrible things that we are likely to witness. Mm -hmm. Well, on that very sobering note, um, I want to just close our panel. And, you know, one very short point for us to think about is tonight we have heard of all the barriers, all the challenges women encounter, and yet we still make it into leadership positions. And I think women are remarkable. But how much more remarkable could they be if none of these barriers existed? So there really is a motivation to level the playing field and give women opportunities to lead. So thank you, panelists, for your wonderful comments. And thank you to everybody online. And to all of you here, please join us for a networking um, event out there. And thank you, everyone online. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks. <laughs>